We have just a couple of adjustments to our sermon text and title that's printed in your bulletin. Um, the Strawbridge family was on vacation, so I had to get my sermon information to Laura a couple of weeks early and very optimistically thought, oh, let's go through chapter 25 of Exodus. And then the more time I spent in it, I thought, there's no way. So let's do the first 22 verses. And then this last week at General Assembly, as I was going back to my room and continuing to work through this text, I thought, there's no way. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 this evening. So Exodus 25, 1 through 9, and if you're a note taker, our sermon title is a little different as well, and it's preparing to worship God according to His design, preparing to worship God as He has designed. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read His Word together. Our God, we do give You thanks for the truth of Your Word, for the depth and riches that we find even in one portion of Scripture. And we pray that our services would always be filled with worship and with awe, focusing upon the glories of the triune God that we come to worship. And we look to You, a Spirit of the risen Christ who dwells within our hearts, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear that which we need from your word this evening. May our risen Lord be glorified, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we read Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. The word of our God, you may be seated. As we continue to move through the book of Exodus and our studies on these Sunday evenings, think for a moment about how you might answer a child who asks you, why did God bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? They grumble and complain. They talk about how great life was back in slavery. Life seems even more difficult for them in the wilderness. So what exactly is God doing? There might be a number of things that come to mind for you. Well, He sees their misery and their compassion, and the Lord is moved to save them. He made a covenant with Abraham, and now is the time in God's eternal decree for him to act upon those covenant promises. They're his chosen people. They are in bondage, and so they must be free if they are to give themselves to the Lord. And of course, there's truth to all of those things, but think further. What is the purpose of their redemption? What is the reason why God brought them out of captivity? Well, that's the first thing that I'd like for us to think about for a few moments this evening and our first point tonight, which is the purpose of redemption. Now, we don't have to speculate on what the purpose is for God bringing His people out of slavery because God's Word is very clear 
it's clear in the way in which the book of Exodus is structured. There's a wonderful book by Daniel Hyde entitled God in Our Midst that really helps the reader understand the purpose of the tabernacle, the furnishings, the priesthood, the garments, and more. And he notes how the storyline of the book of Exodus really takes place in three geographical locations. The book of Exodus, of course, starts in the land of Egypt. That's chapters 1 through 13. And then we shift to a new scene as Israel is traveling through the Sinai wilderness towards Sinai. That's chapters 14 through 18. And then the final scene is from chapters 19 through the end of the book, chapter 40, where Israel is there at Mount Sinai, where we find them here, of course, in this text. And so that means that more than half of the book is set here at Sinai. And the vast majority of the teaching from this section of the book, from chapters 19 through 40, has to do with the tabernacle, the furnishings, the priesthood. And why is that? The first 20 chapters or so are, are fast-paced, they're action-filled. When your kids want Bible time, those are the chapters they want to hear from. They're probably not asking, ooh, Exodus 25. It's vivid, it's memorable events, but now we shift to things that seem to be sort of routine, mundane. And so how should we understand the overall structure of this book? Well, Hyde writes, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that redemption occurs for the purpose of invocation. Salvation happens for the purpose of adoration. The Israelites were saved from Egypt that they might serve the Lord. Likewise, our purpose for being called out of the darkness of the world is that we might be called into the brilliant presence of God. You see, the children of Israel are redeemed that they might worship God. It's not just that they're saved from bondage. It's not just that they're saved from slavery or for oppression, as bad as those things were. They were actually saved from something much, much worse. They were saved from idolatry. They were saved from false worship. They were saved from a life of spiritual darkness and death that they might live and become a true worshiping community that they might give their lives in joyful service to the Lord God who saved them. In a word, God saved them that they might worship Him. And how should we then approach God? How should we approach Him in worship if this is the purpose of redemption? And that gets at a second important principle to think about for a few moments. We worship God according to His design. We worship as He has told us. Because God is holy and righteous and majestic in all of His ways, He doesn't leave it up to us to devise our own worship of Him. But He tells His people clearly, He tells them explicitly how they are to worship Him, namely in reverence and awe according to His design. Theologians call this the regulative principle of worship that Scripture as a whole tells us how to come to the Lord and give our worship to Him. In a lecture I was listening to recently by Ian Hamilton, he says, we need to recover God-honoring worship. This really is part of the continual reformation of the church as we tend to slip into self-worship and coming up with all sorts of interesting ideas. 
He goes on, our worship must be shaped by God's own written revelation, and we are to worship God as He has decreed, not as we have determined. God takes His worship very seriously. And Hamilton went on to quote Calvin, who wrote this provocative statement, nothing is more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous worship of God. Nothing is more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous worship of God. And it really is tragic that much of worship in American evangelicalism fits into that preposterous category, which can be very manipulative, emotive, self-indulgent, and self-oriented. And so, if we keep in mind this central theme of worship, that this is the reason for salvation, that this is the purpose of our redemption, then that will help us to understand what we will find in these next seven chapters of Exodus. And the third thing for us to think about this evening, our third point, is the command that the Lord gives to Moses to build, the command to build. And we see that, of course, here in verses 1 through 9. Now, there are three main things that I want us to notice from these opening verses here of chapter 25, and I think these three things can be captured in three key words from the text, contribution, sanctuary, and pattern. And before we get to those three terms, let's think back a little bit to chapter 24. I think my notes indicated that it's been a couple months since we looked at chapter 24, so just to refresh our memory, there was all of this anticipation leading up to this point of Moses entering into the glory cloud of God, into that intimate presence to receive this instruction that we find now. Moses came down, you'll remember, with the book of the covenant and read the terms of that covenant to the people, and they were enthusiastic in the reception of it. There were sacrifices that were offered in which the blood was sprinkled upon the altar and then sprinkled upon the 12 pillars that represented the people. The book of the covenant was read again, and the people affirmed all that the Lord has said we will do. There was that fellowship meal in which Moses, Aaron, the sons of Aaron, and the 70 elders went partway up the mountain and ate that communal meal there in the presence of God at the feet of the Lord looking up at the floor of the heavenly throne room. And then there was the summoning from the Lord to Moses to come further up the mountain into the holy presence of the Lord where he again is engulfed into that glory cloud. And you'll remember we talked about this threefold vertical division and these three-tiered separation between the people below, the elders partway up, and Moses alone who ascends up into the presence, that intimate presence of God. But of course, the children of Israel cannot remain here in the Sinai Peninsula the charge is for them to move forward to the land of inheritance, to the land of promise. And they can't take Mount Sinai, of course, with them. And so the Lord takes that vertical tiered structure and flattens it horizontally through the structure of the tabernacle in which that threefold separation remains, the outer courtyard in which the people can come and bring their sacrifices to the priests, the inner sanctum, and then the most holy place further in. And so now as chapter 25 opens, here is Moses on top of Mount Sinai in the glory cloud of God where he will remain for the next 40 days and 40 nights, miraculously preserved by the hand of God. 
And chapters 25 through 31 contain the detailed instruction that Moses receives from God during those 40 days. Herman Vitius makes this comment, the Lord created all that is in the span of six days, but for 40 days and 40 nights, He gives detailed instruction on these elements, tabernacle furnishings, priesthood, and more. And so, with all of this heightened expectation, with all of this wondrous buildup and the invitation from the living God for Moses to come further into His presence, what is the first thing that God says to him? What's that first key word? Contribution. Collect an offering from the people for the construction of the tabernacle. Now, at first we might think, that seems a little anticlimactic. All of this buildup, go and collect. But let's remember, this is the purpose for which they were saved. They were brought out of captivity that they might have the privilege and the wonder of worshiping God. Now, God could have created this tabernacle structure Himself. He has infinite power at His disposal, just as He made everything in creation with the power of His spoken Word. He certainly could have created the tabernacle just as He wanted it to be in all of the furnishings. It would have been faster. It would have been more efficient. It could have occurred in a one-minute conversation instead of 40 days. It's perhaps how we tend to think as Americans, very pragmatic in our reasoning. But the Lord, you see, uses ordinary means, giving His people the privilege of contributing to this structure. And notice from verse 2 the manner in which they are to contribute, the motive that is to be behind this contribution. They are to give from a generous heart. Well, this is an important principle behind all of our giving to the Lord. We are to give willingly. We are to give joyfully, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, give from the heart, for God loves a cheerful giver. Deuteronomy 15, verse 10, give to Him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to Him. And so, giving is a part of our worship. It's not like paying annual membership dues to belong to an organization. It's not paying your monthly gym membership, just having it set on auto pay. It's not even a a forced, imposed tax, but we give as an expression of gratitude. So, think, what is it that should move and stir the heart toward that spirit of generosity? What should help to work upon our hearts to ensure that our motivation is proper and right before the Lord as we think of giving, not only of our material substance, but giving of our time and energy and gifts and abilities, both for Israel and in our own lives? Well, we could think of past provision. Israel could think back to many things in which the Lord was gracious to provide for them. There was the substitutionary lamb on the night of the Passover feast, that one that was killed in place of the death of the firstborn in their own homes. There was then the plundering of their enemies as they departed the land of Egypt. There was, of course, the parting of the Red Sea and the Lord's kind protection of them as they went through the Sinai wilderness, guarding them, watching over them, giving them food and needed water, manna and quail. 
they truly have so much to reflect upon when they think of God's kindness, goodness, and mercy, and generosity to them, just as, as we have much to reflect upon in our own lives as we think about the wonder of salvation that's ours in Christ Jesus, the cleansing and pardoning of our sins, the complete and full atoning work of our Savior to purify conscience and make us right before God. And we could, each one of us, reflect upon the way in which we've seen the Lord's wonderful providence in our own lives. All of this is to serve to stir the heart toward gratitude and generosity. Whether it's Israel of old or in our own lives, there ought to be this motivation and spirit to give because He saved us and made us His people. But it's not just reflecting upon the past. The Lord, of course, has made promises to His people as they look toward the future promises of this wonderful inheritance that awaits them in the land of promise, just as we have that hope of heavenly inheritance that awaits us in Christ our Lord. And that, too, is to stir the heart toward generosity. We could add to that not just reflecting back upon the wonder of salvation and the Lord's good providence, not just thinking ahead to that which awaits us in Christ our Lord, but we could also reflect upon the beauty and majesty and splendor of who God is, and allow that to stir the heart toward this spirit of generosity and gratitude. The Lord cares about the heart, about the motivation behind what we give and how we give. So, how should we think of the actual contributions themselves, this list of things that the Lord is asking the people to contribute Well, when we contribute to the Lord, we recognize that we are, of course, merely returning to Him a portion of what He has given to us, recognizing that all that we have is from the Lord our God. Now, at times we might find ourselves giving grudgingly and reluctantly because we convince ourselves that we've worked hard for our paychecks. We've put in a lot of overtime to get that check, and we have all sorts of responsibilities and obligations. We've convinced ourselves that we have poured ourselves into our studies to get to where we are and educate ourselves. But it's important to remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Certainly, there could be no doubt for Israel that whatever they own is from the hand of the Lord. Where will they get such valuable things as gold and silver and bronze? Where would they get this fabric and animal skins and spices and precious stones? Where could they possibly collect all of these things that will be needed for the tabernacle? They were in Egypt. They were slaves. Slaves, of course, own no property. But this was all plunder from the Egyptians. Way back in chapter 12, verse 35, we read, the people of Israel asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Everything they have is from God, and they are just returning a portion of what He has blessed them with, giving as they are able, that they all might participate in this building project. Just like today, some may have been able to contribute more than others, But even the poor could have contributed an animal from their flock. 
Or they could have gone into the wilderness and cut down an acacia tree and brought that as contribution. So whether the gift is large or small, God is glorified and honored when the gift comes from a joyful heart out of worship and gratitude. I heard it illustrated like this. Imagine a father giving money to his children so that they can buy him a Father's Day gift because, of course, they have no job, they have no money, and when he opens the gift, he's filled with love and affection toward his children who bought this gift for him, a gift given out of love. He doesn't tell them, thanks for getting me what I wanted with my money anyway. And so the Lord not only gives His people the privilege of contributing, but as we'll see later, He goes on to equip particular men to build the tabernacle and craft all of the furnishings. And so from the substance that's given to the ability to do those things, it's all from the Lord. And the principle behind all of this that we're reading here remains true in our own lives. What do you have that you did not receive? Again, substance, ability, talents, gifts, everything that you are and everything that you have is a gift from the Lord. Much later in chapter 36, oh, I don't know, we'll get there in 2025, when the free will offering is finally collected, we read that the people were actually told to stop contributing because they had more than enough. Wouldn't that be a remarkable thing? Maybe the men on our own fundraising committee are thinking, oh, this is a perfect time, Pastor, to remind people that we have a building project coming up, and there's still need within our capital campaign. Well, that certainly may be true. This is not a text that teaches us about how to go about raising money for a building project, though I'm sure if you had some extra gold laying around, the deacons will take it. But you see, this is a unique structure for this particular time in redemptive history. But there certainly is ongoing relevance as we think about the need to address the heart of the worshiper. And so whether it's giving financially or whether it's sacrificing of your time, as many of you did this last week to help with our annual vacation Bible school, to serve in our nurseries, to help in Sunday school, to use the abilities and gifts that you have to cook a meal or bake some goods to take to a shut-in or someone who is ill and have needs. We do all of those things, not out of some notion of social activism or for recognition, but we want to do those things out of gratitude, out of hearts that are subdued to the rule and reign of Christ because of how grateful we are for the wonder of our salvation and because of our love for the Lord and love that we have for one another. Just as it was a wonderful privilege for the children of Israel to contribute to the tabernacle, it's a privilege to give to our faithful God because He has saved us from our sins in Christ Jesus. And so giving in whatever form it might take is an outward expression of an inward state of our hearts. Now, another important word to notice in these opening verses is the word sanctuary or an earthly place of holiness. Now, this structure that's about to be built goes by several different names. It's called a tabernacle, which just means tent. Here, it's called a sanctuary, or again, a place of God's holy presence. It's called the tent of meeting, where the Lord comes and meets with His people through the priestly representative. 
It's also called the tent of testimony because this is the place where the tablets of stone will be kept inside, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And all of these titles have something in common, namely that God will come and dwell in their midst. This is not a God who is aloof and distant. Yes, we serve a God who is transcendent, who rules upon His throne in sovereign kingly glory over all that He has created, but He is also the imminent God, the God who will come in intimate closeness to dwell with His people. And just as they live in tents as a pilgrim people, the Lord will come and dwell in this mobile structure with them, accompanying them to the land of promise, to that place of rest. And as we'll see, the tabernacle is to be placed in the very center of the camp of Israel. There's very specific instructions about how the the tribes are to be arranged around the tabernacle, that all of life is to revolve around the living God. He is to be the determining factor at every point in our lives. One commentator that I read put it like this, not since Genesis 3 has the Lord tented or abided among humankind. He wants His people to be transformed by virtue of this intimate presence. And so, He dwells with His people that they might be transformed into His image, that they might be holy as He is holy. As we continue to work our way through these chapters in the weeks ahead, it will be important to feel this tension. God will come into their midst, but they can never approach Him in a cavalier manner. If your lampstand in your own tent happens to run out of oil, you can't just run into the tabernacle and pull out the candelabra as a centerpiece or grab some food off the table of showbread. You cannot go into the Holy of Holies and pull out the tablets of stone and have family worship with your children as you review the Ten Commandments. God is to be feared, and there is a sense in which though He is present, He is still distant from them. It's a tension that, as we will see, will be resolved, and ultimately, as you know, resolved through the work of our Savior. But one final important word from these opening verses, and that is the word pattern. Look again at verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And in verse 40, at the end of this chapter, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. And so, Moses is told to build according to this pattern that the Lord shows him. Build just as the Lord says. Everything that the Lord lists in all of these materials will have its place, from the gold and silver and bronze to all the fabric, the spices, the incense, and so forth. It all has its place. This is not just bring whatever you want and make a contribution. This is not, oh, you had a garage sale on Saturday, and instead of dropping your stuff off at Goodwill, take it to the deacons, and maybe they can do something with it. But since everything is to be built just as the Lord instructs, 
that teaches us something very important about our own approach and worship towards the Lord. The Lord is not interested in our ingenuity when it comes to approaching Him in worship. He tells us what to do, and He tells us how to do it. And we respond in submissive obedience and heartfelt joy. God has the right to tell us how we are to worship Him. Michael Barrett writes, neither Moses nor any of the skilled artisans who assembled the tabernacle had any input into the design. The tabernacle, with all its cumbersome details and precise dimensions, was designed to reflect heaven's order and peace in the disorder of earth. It declared that there was a way out of chaos to paradise to be enjoyed and experienced by the redeemed. And so we could think of verses 1 through 9 here of chapter 25 as sort of a preparation section. I'm going to use a couple of examples here. Think of something like the renderings that are in our own hall, an overall picture of what is about to happen. That's not what is given to the actual contractors, of course. Their detailed instructions are much, much more refined. But we could think of a snapshot of what is to come. Or you could think of it like this. Think back to when you were in college, and you would read through those course descriptions in the student handbook, and it would tell you what you're going to learn in that class. And it's filled with all sorts of technical language, and it's meant to perhaps strike fear into you should I even sign up for this class? I don't even understand what's being described here. And it can be very intimidating. But if you have a good professor, he begins to help you see with greater clarity, and it starts to make sense. Perhaps that's how things started for Moses here in verses 1 through 9. What are we going to do with all of these materials, spices, incense, stones, and more? The lamps, the ephod, the breastplate, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the furnishings, what is all of this about? Well, that's what we'll see, of course, in the chapters to come as the Lord goes back and explains in greater detail each one of these things. And we'll go on and look more fully at some of those furnishings next time of the tabernacle and consider what they teach us about the wonder of our salvation. But if we were to think for a moment here as we close, some things that perhaps we can take away from verses 1 through 9. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, listen to verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, the tabernacle, of course, was done away with long, long ago, and it wasn't as though it just fell apart because it existed in the hot desert sun. But the tabernacle and later the Solomonic temple itself became obsolete as the eternal Son of God came and tabernacled among us, as John says in chapter 1. And just as God gave Israel the tabernacle that He might live among them, the Father has given to us His only Son who took upon Himself human flesh that we might come to the living God through Him. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, we come to something so much greater. And now, as a new covenant community, we are the temple of the living God, as the Spirit of the risen Christ dwells within our hearts, subduing us to His reign. And the charge that is before us is to give and to give your entire self to Him, to die to self, to ask the Lord to help you see areas of your life that you need to die to more and more, that you might live for the God who saved you, to turn from a life of self-interest and self-absorption and turn to the Lord Jesus that you might live and that you might live for His honor and glory. May the Lord be pleased to work such motivation within the hearts of His people.